0: quiz, okay, how many of you remember, that don't be embarrassed if you don't, it will surprise me if very few of you do, how many of you remember what I preached on last Sunday? Just somebody tell me. Spiritual warfare, right? That's what we're in right now, okay, just trust me. We've got two of the most incredible testimonies waiting up there to be baptized, seriously, you've got to hear them. And uh, I don't know what happened. This has never happened in the 16 years that I pastored this church, but the water drained out, as you probably know. And uh, the good news is, it is filling up. The better news for some of you who are sadomasochists out there, it is freezing cold. So you pray for me and for them. We'll get them under. They'll come back up. Only God knows, all right? But we're going to give it our best shot. Welcome to those who are at Mill Creek, those who are watching online, those who are here at our Sugarloaf campus. Um, let me ask you this, I'm, and I, I'm, I'm one of you if you are, I'm a big Waffle House guy, I love Waffle House, how many of you like Waffle House? Okay, all right, you got to particularly from the South, you love Waffle House, well, I've, I've always tried to wonder, what is it about Waffle House, that I love so much, I have one not too far from my home, and we probably, Trace and I, I'll, I'll either go by and pick something up, or so we'll go, we probably eat at Waffle House once a week, once every other week, you know, at least. And, and, and we love it, and I've always wondered, what is it about Waffle House that's so appealing? And why do people love it so much? And then I heard this and I thought, that explains everything. It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. It's warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered, all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you that brings tears to a glass eye. I mean, that just, something about that just gets my heart. I just love Waffle House. And, and you know, when I read that and when I, I, I heard that, first time I heard it, I thought, wow, what a perfect description of what a church ought to be like. I mean, really, think about it. I, and, and I guess you could say for some that Waffle House really is a kind of a church, right? It's packed out on Sunday morning. Some would describe their all-star breakfast with hash browns and pecan waffles as being divine. You know, there's something religious. There's kind of a religious experience there. And yet, honestly, when you hear the late Anthony Bourdain talk about that, who wouldn't want to attend a church like that? Who wouldn't wouldn't be excited about walking into a place like that? Well, here's the good news. There was a church like that that existed about 2,000 years ago and it was in a city called Philippi. Philippi is an ancient city in northern Greece. I've visited several times. I'm going back there next year. It was in its day <clears throat> a bustling metropolitan city. It had a strong industrial base, had a great economy. Paul visited that city for the first time around 50 AD, had never been there before. There was no church there. It was a pretty highly pagan city. And in 50 AD, he founded the first church in the area that we would now call Europe. Well, 10 years later, Paul is writing a letter to that church, and I'm convinced as I've read this letter many times that if Paul had a favorite church of all the churches he founded and all the churches he started, I'm pretty sure he would say if I had to tell you, Philippians would probably be my all-time favorite church. And if you study this letter, you'll uh, understand why. If you're a guest of ours, you've come in a good Sunday because we are beginning a series of messages today through the book of Philippians that we're calling Joy Ride because I believe this is gonna be a ride that you're going to enjoy. It's gonna put a smile on your face, a bounce to your step, just like it did the apostle Paul. And one of the reasons why I'm really pumped about us studying the book of Philippians is because to be very honest with you, we live in a generally joyless world. When you think about it, let me ask you a question. If you, live in, if you work downtown Atlanta, so you have gotta get up in the morning, you gotta fight traffic going down, you gotta fight traffic coming home. Just easy question. How much joy do you find on I-85? Not a lot. Walk into a, a, a grocery store anytime. You don't find a lot of joy. And you know, it really doesn't matter where you live. It's just a joyless world. It doesn't matter whether you live in a relatively prosperous, peaceful country like ours or a war-torn country across the globe, globe or an extremely poor nation. Everywhere you look, there's despair. There's disappointment. There's dissatisfaction. There's discouragement. There's division. And and frankly, I don't think anybody would argue that either inside most churches or outside all churches, there's not an overabundance of joy. But this church was an exception. I'll tell you how I know that's true. Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament out out of 27, almost half the New Testament. Every one of them were letters that he wrote to churches. Now, the interesting thing is, of the 13 letters, 11 of them were written to seven different churches. But when you read Philippians, something stands out. Of all the letters that Paul wrote to all the churches, this is the only letter in which he never corrects any bad teaching. He never rebukes any bad behavior. He never has to handle a bad situation. It is a totally positive letter. And i thought to myself as I've studied this book so many times, why? Well, what was it about this church that Paul just fell so in love with? Well, it was a church that was full of joy. It gave joy to the pastor that founded it. It gave joy to the people who attended it. As a matter of fact, 19 times in this book, you find three words. You find the word joy. You find the word rejoice. You find the word gladness. And as you read this book and study this book, all of a sudden it hits you. This is what a church ought to look like on the inside of the people who attend it. This is what a church ought to look like from the outside to people who don't attend it. So as we kind of begin our study, I would like to ask three questions. One of me, one of you, one of us. Here's my question to me. Am I the kind of pastor who brings joy to God's heart as he looks at me? Am I the kind of pastor that brings joy to your heart by being here? Here's the second question. Am I the kind of church member who brings joy to my pastor's heart when he thinks of me, but here's the bigger question. Are we the kind of church that brings joy to the people who attend the church on the inside and the people who look at the church from the outside? I really believe if the first two things are true, the last thing will be true. So as we begin our study in Philippians today, if you have your little booklet called The Year of the Disciple, we're on page 40. You can look on there and you'll find our scripture for the day there, and I wanna share with you today three things that were true about that church that I want us to be true about our church, both to insiders and to outsiders. I wanna be a church that's wanted. Now, the question is, well, what does that mean? What 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 does that look like? How is it that we want everyone, whether they're inside the church or outside the church, to see us? When you're out on the street, you're in the grocery store, or you're talking to a next door neighbor, and Cross Point Church, whether it's Mill Creek or Sugarloaf, Point Church comes up, What do we want people to see and to think about us? Well, Paul said three things. Number one, we want people to be grateful when they think about us. Grateful when they think about us. Now, here's how Paul begins his letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. He was talking to the church. So if you know the Lord and you're a follower of Jesus, you may be kind of down in your life or up in your life. You may be hitting on all eight cylinders or not so much, but you're still part of God's holy people. Together with the overseers, that's people like me and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. As a pastor, that's mind boggling. Now, Paul is talking to two groups of people that actually make up every church that's ever been or ever will be. Our church is made up of two kinds of people, Jews, and Gentiles. Matter of fact, let me clue you in on something. The whole world is basically can be boiled down, ethnically speaking, to two kinds of people. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody's one or the other. If you're Jewish, you're not a Gentile. If you're Gentile, you're not Jewish. And so here was a church that that, that you know was full of Jews and full of Gentiles. You say, how do you know they were full of both? Well, because of the greeting that Paul gave them. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace is the way you would greet a Gentile. If you were walking down the street and it was obvious that someone was not Jewish, your greeting was grace. If you were walking down the street and you walked into a Jew, it was shalom, which means peace, peace to you. So I know right off the bat, this was a very diverse church. You had Gentiles, you had Jews, and yet it was full of joy, evidently had any few real difficult problems, which really kind of is amazing But the more amazing statement to me is the one that blows my mind and it speaks volumes about how much Paul loved this church and the kind of people that were in it. He said, every time I remember you, every time I thank God for you. Now, I wanna be transparent as a pastor, I wanna go, come on, really? I pastored five churches. On the one hand, for the most part, My memories of those churches are good memories. And and, and I can honestly say, I'm thankful for most of the people I've pastored. Not all the people I've pastored. I'm thankful for all the churches that would have me as their pastor. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said every memory is a good memory. I'd be lying if I said, man, I'm thankful for every person I have ever Pastor, Now, to be fair, I probably could fill this church up with people that are not too thrilled I was ever their pastor. So I get it, you know, it kind of works both ways, I understand, and, I, and frankly, I, I'm sure that the way that I remember some people would not be the way they would remember me, and the way that, I, that, that they remember me is not the way I would remember them. You can have the same experience and yet have two different memories. I'll give you an illustration. There were two women who worked in the same office downtown in a building, and they they were chatting and, and having a talk, and they were both married to two men who also worked in the same office in another building. Well, they were kind of having a talk one morning, and wife number one was talking to wife number two. She said, you know, I had a beautiful evening last night. It was fantastic. She said, how was yours? The second wife said, it was a disaster. My husband came home, ate his dinner in about three minutes, and fell asleep. Tell me about your evening. She said, oh, my evening was amazing. She said, my husband came home, took me out for a romantic dinner. After dinner, we walked for an hour. When we came home, he lit candles around the house. It was a fairy tale. Well, it just so happened the same two husbands were having the same conversation in another building and another office, and they're having the same conversation. Husband number one said, hey, how was your evening last night? Husband number two said, it was great. I came home. My wife had dinner on the on the uh, on the plate. I ate. I fell right asleep. Woke up great. It was wonderful. He said, um, "How about you?" Oh, he said, "Man, it was a disaster." He said, "What happened?" Well, I came home. There was no dinner on the table. They had cut the electricity because I forgot to pay the bill. I had to take my wife out for dinner, which was so expensive. I didn't have enough money left for the cab. We had to walk home, which took an hour. When we got home, I remember there was no electricity. I had to light candles all over the house. So you see, you can have the same experience, but you can remember it two different ways. And and it's it's very rare that anybody has great memories about everybody all the time. And yet Paul makes this incredible statement. He said, every single time, I remember every single one of you in that church, man, I just thank God for you. you. You just put a smile on my face. You put joy in my heart. You put a bounce to myself. And I just wanna say, that's what I want people to say about our church. Those who attend our church and those who don't. Those who know about our church and those who just hear about our church. I want people to be grateful about for us. I wanna be the kind of church that if we decided today, you know what, we're just gonna shut everything down. We're gonna sell this property. We're just gonna go our separate ways that the whole community would go into mourning. I want people to say, you can't do that. You can't leave. We need you. We love you. You're giving too much. We're thankful for your ministry to the needy, your ministry to the hungry, your ministry to the community, your ministry to the schools, your ministry to the city. That's what I want people to think about us. Be grateful when they think, when they just hear the name cross. Oh, I've heard about your church. So thankful for all that you do. But then Paul said something else. He said, we not only want people to be grateful when they think about us. We want people to be joyful when they talk about us. Joyful when they talk about us. Now listen to what Paul says. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I can't say that. I'm just being honest. There have been times in my ministry I've prayed, Lord, it's okay if that family leaves and goes somewhere else. No, no hard feelings. I, you know, every time Paul prayed for this church and every time, time Paul talked to God about this church, he radiated. He, he was so happy. He was so full of joy. And By the way, keep in mind, when Paul wrote this letter, he's writing from a prison. And so when Paul was talking about joy, he wasn't talking about the kind of joy that we kind of tend to talk about. It's not the kind of joy that we think about. Yeah, I'll give you an illustration. When, uh, when my grandson Harper was about two, maybe three years old, Teresa, we had to keep him almost every day. Teresa would drive over to his house, pick him up. She'd bring him back to the house and and, we'd keep him during the day. Well, one of the things that she would always do every morning, bless my heart, she'd pick him up in the car and she'd sing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. You know, she's trying to get Harper uh, in a good mood. Well, this one particular morning, Harper was not in a beautiful mood. Oh, he didn't sleep well. He didn't get his breakfast. I don't know what it was. So she picked him up and she started singing. Okay. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Well, this is how he responded one morning. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Sing for daddy. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Now I really forget. No more beautiful day. I've had enough. I'm not in a beautiful mood. Okay. We're all like that. I mean, let me tell you, let's just be honest. All of you got to get up and go to work in the morning. You're going to get up at five, 5.30 or six just to beat the traffic. How many of you get in your car and go, oh, what a beautiful morning. You don't even know, don't even know it's morning. Okay. And so Paul, Paul, for Paul, there were not a lot of beautiful days. But every time Paul thought about this church, And every time Paul thought about this people, his day was filled with beautiful joy. Well, that raises a question. So, hey, hey, Doc, what what was it about this church that brought such joy to Paul's heart? What, What was it about this church that put a bounce in his step? Well, it's not hard to find. This church did one thing. Now, listen carefully. One thing. One thing this church did And it would make anyone who knew anything about this church to be joyful when they talked about this church. You know what this church did that brought such joy to Paul's heart? Watch this. He said, every time I prayed for you, I prayed with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now hang with me. That word partnership, you wouldn't recognize it probably because in the Greek language in the New Testament, Most often, that word's translated fellowship. But that word fellowship is one of the most misunderstood words in the New Testament. Because when we think about fellowship, we'll say, man, I had some good fellowship today. Here's what we think we think fellowship is just, you know, meeting up with somebody to have a cup of coffee or or go hunt or go fish or go play golf or take a spa day or something like that. Well, in the first century, the word fellowship actually was a financial term and it was related to commerce and business. I'll give you an illustration. If two people decide they're gonna go into business together, and let's say they're gonna be you know, equal partners. So this guy's gonna put in 50%, this guy's gonna put in 50%, okay? Now we're talking business. Once they decide they're gonna go into business together, we don't call it a fellowship, we call it a what? Yeah, a partnership, okay? It is a partnership, that's the word that was used. See, here's the difference. This church understood, I don't know how they did it, but they understood from the time they had their first service. You know what? We've just entered into a partnership. Paul, we've entered into a partnership with you. We've entered into a partnership with each other. Lord, we've entered into a partnership with you. Now we've gotta do two things as partners. If we're gonna be partners, we've gotta give to the work of the gospel and we also have to work to spread the gospel and we've got to do it together. And I'm gonna make this statement. I believe that so much would radically change in our church. I'm not talking about any other church. I believe so much would change in our church if every one of you listening to me right now, even one of our campuses would understand you should never just walk in here as an attender. You should never walk in here as just a member. You ought to walk in here and understand you're a partner. And partners are fully invested in the ministry. Partners buy into the ministry. Partners put their money where their mouth is and their time where their mouth is. You roll up your sleeves, you go to work in this ministry. You you, you buy into the ministry. By the way, that's what we mean by worship and disciple and send and serve. For example, we just got through having wonderful worship. What were we doing? We were celebrating the gospel together. Well, what do you do when when you disciple someone? You're teaching them to be a partner in the gospel. When you serve. Why do you serve? It's a means of spreading the gospel. When you're sent, when you leave this church, listen, let me me tell you something. It's it's gonna scare you for a minute, okay? You're not gonna leave our church today. So what do you mean? You're gonna lock the doors and pull out the guns? No, I'm not gonna do that. Here's what I mean. If you are a part of this church, you can't leave this church. When you walk out that door, you take the church with you. Can I get an amen to that? You you are the church, church doesn't stay here, the building stays here, the church doesn't stay here. So you know what your role is when you walk out that door to your neighborhood, to the people you work with, the people you do business with? You're a partner in this church. You're to be a marketing agent for this church. And by the way, we're not just partners on Sunday, we're partners on every day that ends in Y. So let me give you a pop quiz. I want you to answer out loud when I'm finished. Who is supposed to preach the gospel, teach the gospel, witness to the gospel, support the gospel, and spread the gospel? Who's supposed to do that? Yeah, we are. See, I grew up in a day, and I did, I grew up, you know what my thinking was when I was growing up in church? That's what we pay the pastor to do. That's your job. No, no, it's our job. That's nothing to do with me being a pastor, it has to do with being a follower of Jesus and someone saved by the gospel. We're all to be gospel partners. And here's the good news, we're all equal partners. There's no junior partners, there's no senior partners. We're all equal partners and we're to have a partnership in the gospel. You say, pastor, why do you always hammer that? You seem like you say that almost every week. I'll tell you why. At the end of the day, I've learned this, I pastored five churches. At the end of the day, the only thing that will hold this church together the only thing that will keep this church together is the glue of the gospel. Because you think, think about how diverse our church is. We've got men and women, young and old, blue collar and white collar, healthy and sick, fit and flabby, different races, different incomes, Different levels of education, different personalities, different political parties, right? But what is it that holds us together? I'll tell you, if we will do one thing as a church, nothing will ever divide this church, nothing. We've gotta be 100% all the time, every day sold out to the gospel. When people think about our church, I don't want them to think about, was that a conservative church, liberal church? Is it a Republican church, Democrat it No, I want them to think, man, that's a church that loves the gospel. That's a church that's all about the gospel. That's a church that is centered on the gospel. Because think about it, go back to that early church. Do you understand all the barriers there were in that early church to come together and stay together? There were racial barriers, there were Jews and Gentiles. There were social barriers, you had slave and free. There were financial barriers, you had rich and poor. There were cultural barriers, you had Romans and Greeks. There were educational barriers, you had the schooled and the illiterate. But there was one message that brought them together. There was one magnet that drew them together. There was one ministry that kept them together and that was the gospel. And whenever a church comes together and says, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna celebrate the gospel in our worship. We're gonna elevate the gospel in our service. We're gonna communicate the gospel in our lives. Here's what will happen. People everywhere will be joyful when they talk about our church. I pray you're catching the heart and the spirit of what Paul said and what's in my heart today. I thought about this coming coming into into the um, building this morning. One day, I'm going to give an account as to how this I pastored this church. I will give an account as to, as to how every dollar that you gave to this church was spent. You don't think that keeps me up at night? Every dollar. You want to give an account. You got to give an account whether you give or not. I've got to give an account as what we did with it. We get it. We understand. We take it very seriously. But let me tell you something. All of us as a church is going to be judged by the Lord. What kind of a church were we? were we the kind of church where people inside the church and people outside the church, they were grateful when they thought about us. They were joyful when they talked about us. But then there's one last thing, and it's my favorite part of the message. Paul said, you're the kind of church when people are grateful when they think about you. People are joyful when they talk about you. But people are boastful in what they trust about you. Now, Now listen to what Paul says. There were a lot of things that I guarantee you, when Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't sure of. He wasn't even sure he'd finish the letter. He wasn't even sure if this would be the last day he'd live. He wasn't sure he'd ever get out of that prison. He wasn't sure he'd ever see these people again. He wasn't sure he'd ever preach in a church ever, ever again. But there was one thing Paul was rock rib, absolutely, totally sure about. Listen to what he says, being confident of this <clears throat> that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what was Paul talking about? He was actually talking about two things. He First of all, he was talking about their salvation, their relationship to God. He said, you know what I'm sure about? I'm sure that when God began that work in you 10 years ago, when God saved, God saved you and God saved you and God saved you and God saved you and God saved you, I am absolutely, totally, absolutely convinced you will never lose that salvation. Your relationship will never be broken, not because of your goodness, but because of God's grace. Because let me let me go back and, and maybe help some of us this morning understand those of us who are following Jesus, how it all got started. I mean, how did these people become believers to begin with? You say, well, you just told us. You said Paul went there and Paul preached the gospel and they responded and they got saved. Now, that's what happened. I'm asking you, how did it happen? How did that, all that start? That word began is actually a compound verb that means to begin in. The work that God began in you. It's only used two times in the New Testament. Both times refer to our salvation. So what did Paul mean when he said, he who began a good work in you? Well, it's interesting, if you go back to the book of Acts and you read how this church got started, the very first convert in that church was a businesswoman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple dye. She was a very rich woman. And evidently Paul met her and Paul began to share the gospel with her and she responded to the gospel. But again, how did she respond? How did it all get started? Listen to what we read in the book of Acts. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. God began the church in Philippi by beginning the work of salvation in Lydia. Now, this may surprise some of you because there are a lot of us think, well, I know I became a Christian, I did it. I started, I kind of decided I would come to the Lord. Yeah, you did, but how did that happen? So listen to this next statement. You never start with God. God starts with you. God always goes first. And you better be glad that he does. You say, well, why is that? Because number one, you can't finish what God starts. That will preach. Number two, thank you. I wish I had a hundred of you. Number two, number two, not only can you not finish what God starts, it gets better. What God starts, he always finishes. Always. That word there for carry it on to completion we read a moment ago, it literally means to fully complete. Now I'm gonna ask you a question, let's all be honest, okay? I'm gonna go ahead and tell you. If you don't raise your hand when I ask you this question, you're lying like a dog. No, you're lying like a gator. All right, listen. (laughs) How many of you have ever started a job you didn't finish? Okay, yeah. Maybe, Maybe it's the puzzle you never put together. It's the room you left unpainted. You know, it's the cake you have baked. Whatever it is. Yeah, we've all started a job we didn't finish. Listen to me. God never leaves a job half finished. He never leaves it three quarters finished. He never leaves it 99 for finish, finished. What God starts, God finishes. So let me tell you what that means. This will make some of you really get, re- get, really get joyful, okay? When God saves a person, he saves that person completely. I mean Completely. Nobody's half saved. Nobody's three quarters saved. You're either 100% saved or you're 100% lost. There is no in between. And when God saves us, He saves us body, He saves us soul, He saves us spirit, He saves us completely. When God saves us, He saves us permanently. In other words, there's nothing temporary about it. You're not put on probation. There's no trial period. God doesn't save you and say, okay, James, I'm gonna see if you kind of live up to what you what I want you to do. I'm gonna see if you kind of make the scale. I'm gonna make sure that you do what I want you to do. And then I'll decide if I'm really gonna permanently save you or not. It doesn't work that way. When God saves you, he saves you permanently. And then when God saves us, he saves us eternally. He says, you will carry it on to completion for how long, Paul? Until the day of Christ Jesus. When is the day of Christ Jesus? That's the day when Time ends. That's the day when your life and my life ends. That's the day when the world ends. And what Paul was saying was, one day time's going to end. One day your life's going to end. One day this world's going to end. But your relationship with God will never end. Because what God started in you, God will finish in you. But there's a second thing he was talking about. He began a good work in you, he said. We'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, so go back to the moment that you gave your life to Christ. Go go back to the moment when you got saved. The two men we're gonna baptize in a moment, one man got saved about six, seven weeks ago, one man got saved three years ago. Go back to that time in your life when you gave your life to Jesus. At that moment, what did God start doing in you? Paul tells us, he started doing a good work. All right. So let me tell you something that's true about every one of you that know Christ today. You ready? This is so good. This is true about the people you're sitting in front of, behind, next to. True about everybody in this room. True about listening to me right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, I know exactly what God's doing in your life right now. If you let Him, a good work. Now you may not look on the outside. You may you, you know some people you look at and you go, I think God took a break. I think God went on vacation. No, trust me. Right now, God is doing a good work in you. Do you know what God wants to do in you every day when you get out of bed? A good work. Do you know what God wants to do in you to the day you go to heaven? He wants to do a good work. Do you know what God wants to do every day in our church, through our church, with our church, by our church and for our church? He wants to do a good work. Do you know what I want people on the outside of our church saying and knowing about those of us who are on the inside of this church? I always want our church to be known for two things. Number one, the good works that God is doing in us. I want people to look at our church and say, you know, when they walk into our church, they see the way that we worship, they see the way that we love each other, they see the way we engage in the message, they see the way we are in hunger for the study of the word of God. I want people to walk in our church and walk out and say, man, I don't know what all God's doing, but boy, he's doing some good things in the people of this church. And then the second thing I want them to know is the good works that God's doing through us. I want them to know, why do we have CarePoint? Why do we feed hungry people? Why do we clothe poor people? Why do we have CP serves day several times a year? We ask hundreds of you to come out and we just go serve anybody and everybody. We literally go try to find people we can serve just for the sake of serving. Why do we have feet on the street? People that go to downtown Atlanta, some of you even know this, we've got people that go to downtown Atlanta every single Saturday, minister to the homeless, the helpless, the hopeless, share the gospel, give them love, give them things that they need, who will never attend our church, who will never do anything for our church, who will never give anything back in our church because we want people everywhere to know God's doing a good work in this church and God's doing a good work through this church and knowing that, Every single one of us ought to want to be involved in that good work. See, the people who looked at this church in that little town called Philippi, they were boasting, they were bragging about what they trusted about them. They knew that church could be counted on a lot more than Waffle House to be a place of joy and ministry and service and worship and discipleship and love. I read something the other day, I read two things that broke my heart and I think it's true. Somebody said, more and more people find God believable, but the church unbearable. More and more people find Jesus appealing, but the church appalling. It doesn't have to be that way that it will take every one of us in this church at both of our campuses to wake up and finally say, you know what, pastor? I understand now what you said. I understand now the message of this passage. I'm not just to come here and fill a seat. I'm not even come here and drop an offering in a bucket. I'm not even come here to, to pretend to you while I'm listening to you while I'm texting my buddy. Yeah, I know that goes on. The reason why God wants me to hear is to be a fully bought-in partner of the gospel." And when we finally make up our minds, you know what, that's what we need to do, it will radically change our church. By all accounts, the turning point of the Revolutionary War, many historians say it's the reason why we're Americans today and not British or Germans. The turning point of the Revolutionary War took place on Christmas Day in 1776. It's when George Washington crossed the Delaware, totally surprised the British in one of the greatest victories of the war, and it turned the entire tide of that conflict. Here's what a lot of people don't know. Washington's troops were at the end of their enlistment. The vast majority of his army was discouraged. They had made up their mind, we can't win this war. We should never got in it to begin with. I don't wanna fight anymore. I just wanna go home. And they were just about to put their arms down and go back to their farms and give everything up, the vast majority of his army. So Washington was trying to think, "How how can I help? By the way, they weren't even getting money that they were promised to be paid by the Congress. So on December the 23rd, Washington took a bold move. He had his officers all the way up and down the Delaware read the words of a pamphlet entitled The Crisis. It was written by a man named Thomas Paine. When he sent orders to all of his officers on the 23rd, all of us up and down the Delaware to read this pamphlet, he said, I don't care whether you read some of it, part of it, all of it, but he said there is one thing you make sure you read and you make sure every soldier hears. And this is, these are the words that he told them to read. Can we put it up there? Can we put it up there? Yep. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier, listen to these words. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot. What did he mean by summer soldier? That's the guy that will fight when it's hot and the sun's shining. There's not a lot of snow on the ground. It's not too uncomfortable. And the sunshine patriot. Who's the sunshine patriot? Oh, he's all in if the sun's shining. He's all in as long as it doesn't cost him anything. He's all in as long as he doesn't have to fight anybody. He says, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. You know what happened? To a man, the entire colonial army said, we will stay and we will fight and the rest is history. So here's my message and we're finished. Not melodramatic, just the fact. Our church is at a crossing in many, many ways. Not just our church, the church, but our church. And more and more, here's what we're seeing in the church everywhere. More and more, we're seeing Summer soldiers, sunshine patriots. I'll come when i got nothing else to do. Don't ask me to serve. If I do give, I'll give when I want to give, what I want to give. And if I don't want to give, I won't give. No, I don't have a one. I'm not interested in having a one. I'm not into this gospel stuff. I just want to come and just kind of hear you encourage me and then just leave me alone. We're at a crossing. The church is at a crossing. And I'm not ashamed to tell you we need all of us to go all in. We need all of us to go all in being partners in the gospel, giving to the work of the gospel, doing the work of the spread of the gospel. And I promise you, if we do, we'll be a church wanted. And you know, one last thing I wish I could tell you that God had a plan B but there's no plan B if we're not going to be gospel partners in this area who's going to do it there's a reason why we're here there's a reason why we're at Mill Creek there's a reason because God wants us to build something so magnificent so great so awesome that yes he'll get the glory But people will be grateful when they think about us. And they'll be joyful when they talk about us. And they'll be boastful in what they trust about us. Because they'll know beyond anything else, this God who began a work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together with his bowed and eyes closed, and I wanna ask everyone to be just very quiet and still for just a moment. I just wanna ask you one question, and it's real easy to answer. Are you a gospel partner or not? Are you a partner in the gospel or not? Let me just stop you. You can't be a partner in the gospel if you never become a participant in the gospel. You can't be a partner with the gospel if you never become a participant in the gospel. You say, what does that mean? Till you realize you're a sinner and you need a savior, until you realize the only savior is Jesus, till you realize he died for your sins, he was raised from the dead, and he did all of that so that you would believe the gospel, be saved by the gospel, be infiltrated by the gospel, be energized by the gospel, be obsessed with the gospel, and be a partner with the gospel, then you're never, ever going to be where God wants you to be in your life, ever. I just want to ask who here today who at the campus at Mill Creek, who watching us online right now by television, who would say right now, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I I wanna be a partner in the gospel. I I, I wanna have a purpose and meaning in life that will far outlast me and outlive me long after I leave this planet. If you would say, you know, I've never been saved by the gospel of Jesus, but I wanna be saved today by the Jesus of the gospel. Would you just tell him that right now? If you know deep down you need Jesus in your life, would you just say something like this? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I I need a Savior. I, I can't save myself. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe in my heart God raised you from the dead. And I believe you're alive right now. So Lord Jesus, come into my heart, save me and forgive me. I trust you as my Savior. I surrender to you as the Lord of my life. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life today. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to do something right now. Would you do this for me? In your worship guide, uh, as you walked in today, you were given a little worship guide. On the bottom of that guide, there's a card called connection card. If you prayed to receive Christ today and you meant it, if you didn't mean it, I'm not talking to you, but if you meant it, I'm gonna ask you to take that card and do this for yourself and for the Lord. Sign your name to that card, put some contact information down, email, cell phone number, home address. Then at the bottom, there's a box there that says, "'Today I prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior.'" Check that box off. Now, if you checked off the first box and you're really all in, you go and check off the second box. You want to check, you want to be biblically baptized. You say, why should I do that? Here's why, when you give your life to Christ, you join the army, but you don't put on the uniform till you get baptized. Some of you, you've been in the army, but you have never even put on the uniform. You've never been biblically baptized. So if you got saved today, I'm gonna ask you to check off both of those boxes. I've got saved, I wanna be baptized. You may be here and you may say, you know, I've never been biblically baptized like we're about to see in a minute. I've never done that. Well, you could do that today. You could just check that box off, say, "You know, I wanna be biblically baptized. And we'll make it a point for you to do that. Hey, the third box, You've been coming, you've been attending, you've been showing up, you've been filling a seat, but you're not a gospel partner. You're not involved in our church. You don't serve in our church. You're not connected to a community in our church. It's time for that to happen. It's time for you to get involved, get invested. Check off that third box. Then when you when this service is over at either one of our campuses, go out to the lobby. You'll see a table called Connection Point, can't miss it. Take your card to that table. That's all you have to do. Just take the card to the table. They'll see what boxes you've checked off. They'll know what you need to do. For the rest of us, can I be lovingly kind, but firm when I say something to all of us here? When I ask you, who's your one? If you don't have one, if you don't have a one, you're not a gospel partner. I don't know what you wanna be, but you're not a gospel partner. Because every gospel partner has one person, that one person, you say, man, that's my one. You're gonna hear a testimony of someone that became my one by the providence of God. So after I pray in just a moment, we're gonna receive our offering and we're gonna have a time of singing. Let me ask you to do this. If you're a gospel partner, you don't wanna leave till the baptism's over because if you wanna know what I want our church to be known for, you're about to see it up there in that baptistry. Life's changed by the only thing that holds us together, the gospel. Father, thank you for this sweet church. We have not touched the hem of the garment of all we could do and do and all we could be, either at this campus or at Mill Creek, either one, we have it. May we be the kind of church that Philippi had, a church where people on the inside and the outside are grateful, joyful, boastful about the work you're doing in us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.